Nanak. I'm Annie AK. And I'm Melissa. And together we want to welcome you to Still Great Bob. If this is your first time joining us, together we are watching AMC's Mad Men, trying to answer the question, is it Still Great Bob? This week we're discussing Season 1, Episode 7, Red in the Face, written by Bridget Bedard and directed by Tim Hunter. This episode originally aired on August 30th, 2007. The number one movie at the box office that weekend was Rob Zombie's remake of Halloween, a movie I definitely forgot happened. Superbad fell to second place, and third place was the ping-pong comedy Balls of Fury. The hit song was Beautiful Girls by Sean Kingston, still, and I still haven't heard it yet, uh, but next week, oh, let's see if it maintains the top of the mountain. And that's a sizzle. Mm-hmm. So it's funny that you forgot about Rob Zombie's Halloween because I think about it a lot because <laughs> it <laughs> made me cry within the first 10 minutes and oh, then no. I sat in the theater with not only my eyes closed, but my ears plugged. <laughs> oh no. And I tried to get my friends to take me home and they were like, no, Bye. we're staying for this movie we paid for. See, I only ever remember House of a Thousand Corpse or whatever it was called. Yeah, I've seen that too. It didn't traumatize me the way this Halloween did. I don't know. But this week on Mad Men, Roger joins the Drapers for dinner. Peter teaches the office about chip and dips. The Nixon campaign visits Sterling Cooper despite the elevator being out of service. It felt like a very packed episode. I don't know about you guys. I like this episode a lot. It was packed. I remember, especially like... The whole time on the stairs, I did remember thinking, like, man, is this episode extra long? <laughs> yeah, it felt really long. I mean, not that, like, not in a bad way. No, no. But it did feel like, we're still going. There's still more stuff. We have talked to everyone. They spent a really long time getting up six flights of stairs, which I thought was very funny. <laughs> they were uh, like, there's six left, and then there was like a couple different like transitions of them <laughs> trying to get up the last six flights. The continuity with the sweat increasing was also just excellent, I have to say. <laughs> oh... But, I mean, we can talk about Roger and Don and their cardiovascular health after we cover a few others. Peter Campbell, he got a lot of time into this week. He did. He did. Um, Roger called him Paul at the very <laughs> beginning, which I thought was pretty funny. But then, later, we get two different people calling him Humps. Have, did we know that that was a nickname for Pete? I before this episode? I feel like that's something we would have known ahead of time. I feel like that too. But regardless of whether we knew that before or not, we now have an episode where Pete is just not being called by his name at all. And Hump seems to be at least kind of like an endearing nickname. Paul <laughs> is just straight up not his name. <laughs> but that I feel like is intentional. Yeah, Pete might be getting a little lost, I think. <laughs> getting? Well, yeah. Continuing to be. <laughs> now, my favorite moment was his introduction in the episode was, did I miss something? As he comes up to, like, Don and Roger making plans for the evening, and I thought, oh, that just wrapped. That's just Pete in a nutshell right there. <laughs> That's so perfect. 
and yeah, yeah. Or Paul. And then Roger chooses that as a moment to uh, to dig and, and and tease Pete a bit. I thought that that was that was kind of fun. I was like, yeah, we talk about you, we talk all the time without you. It's fine. I'll see you later, Paul. Um, <laughs> it's a good moment. <laughs> so, how do we feel about Pete this week? How do we feel about Pete this week? Um, in my reading or in my sense, it kind of further was an extrapolation of something we talked about back during. Um, I think it was New Amsterdam, was that episode four? Um, about how Peter kind of plays plays the roles he feels like are ascribed to him or, or, or given to him by by society and, and how that contrasts with who he thinks he is or who he wants to be, right? Um, I lost count during the episode of how many times he says, it's a chip and dip, we got two. <laughs> um, like, like, and... It's just interesting, like, because everyone's kind of um, busting his his chops a little bit about, well, what's a chip and dip? Why are you returning it? Why isn't Trudy doing it? And Peter has this line where it's like, oh, well, I, I like doing things for her. And, you know, it's it's nice. And I told her I'd do it, so I'm going to do it. And it's it's him playing this this role of, of the dutiful husband. And I guess my question related to that for the both of you is, do we think Peter actually likes doing those things? Or part of him does? Or does he just, like playing those roles that people tell him, whether it's a people person or a dutiful husband. And if he does like doing those things, why does he then pivot towards getting the the present for him? Um getting the the twenty two as this kind of phallic symbol of his his masculinity. I mean I kinda saw it one of two ways. One of them was just Trudy is such a strong personality, as we've seen in the past, she's not really someone who plays that withering retiring kind of wife who's just going to be done you know she's just going to do what she's told and play her part she's going to be herself so if she's going to tell Pete to do this to do this thing for her he has to do it so it's kind of like his way of being like oh it was my choice to do it I want to do this Um, but part of me also thinks that this like he's probably also the softer part of him does enjoy feeling like he's taking care of his woman and doing all these things but as soon as everyone starts making all these comments where he's you know in line with all the women for for making returns he runs into like his old school buddy all these digs about like why are you doing this thing i think it starts like twigging something in him that really insecure part where he sees this thing that he is doing and is like wait wait a second maybe i am seeing this all wrong and i should feel more offended that i am doing this woman's job melissa what about you yeah i I tend to agree with that i think he gets he just wants to be whatever he's supposed to be and i think he's having a hard time figuring out which of those roles is going to benefit him the most like yeah doing things for Trudy um what you know is going to benefit him in the grand scheme of in the grand scheme of things but only at home no one else is going to see that so if he was operating just for himself I think that would be the way to go but since he seems to be operating for the outward approval of other people that's why we end up with Pete with a gun in the office. That's a really interesting take on it. It makes perfect sense. He is very much about image, even though he can't seem to figure out how to make it happen. But 
definitely, yeah, the way that others are seeing him and it really affects how he sees himself more than anything. No, that's interesting. We, sorry, just to, to jump in there where, no. again, he like, because he's so concerned with how he perceives others perceive him, he, he kind of like, it's kind of like, he's almost a bit of a paper doll, right? Where it's like really easy to like try on different outfits and different roles and different models, but none of them kind of fit well. And he's, and I think an example of that is when he's in, he's in line and the, the lady at the, the store is, is trying to find um, the correct bridal registry and waspy prep school bro the third who like which is one was one tennis sweater away of being a total cartoon caricature of you know a, a prep school like friend um but he's totally like turning on the charm and flirting with the uh the woman at the counter and then he leaves away and is like oh i'm coming back for you in this really kind of creepy way but then Pete tries to do that same thing and turn on the charm to to get out of just the store credit. And she's and the woman behind the counter is, is having none of it. So like Pete's trying in that moment to be like, what's his name? Like Mallerton or something like that. I like Waspy Prep School Bro the third better because it kind of summarizes everything he rep- represents in this episode. But he tries to turn that on in that way, and it's not working in the same way that I think he kind of Peter tries to turn on the dutiful husband or tries to turn on kind of the advertising executive at time and it just none of it kind of fits and it, it's like he's he's searching for i think two things i think he's definitely like we've, we've discussed that kind of wanting to control his own self-image or his own um press i guess if you want to call it that way but then what do you both think about the idea that peter's trying to kind of find himself and who he is apart from all those roles that he's also playing because I, I keep coming back to that kind of hunting and, and and cabin fantasy kind of i guess the jump ahead that he explains to to peggy earlier and maybe we can, can talk about that more in a bit but do you think pete's trying do you think it's all him trying to control how others perceive him or do you think he's also trying to figure out kind of who he is and who he wants to be no i agree that he hasn't quite figured out what he wants or the things he thinks he wants aren't real. Like his cabin fantasy, it's just one moment. It doesn't really mean anything. It has absolutely no depth to it other than the fact that it is slightly psychopathic. And it's it's just this very superficial idea of what masculinity is and having and not wanting more than just this really simple thing. That last part is probably actually a really nice, contented idea to to strive for. But, you know, it's the, the, the woman in the picture bringing him the food is no more of a complex image than the uh, than his bounty that he hunted down and brings back to feed himself in. She doesn't even eat any of it. She just watches him, which is so awful to me. It was so off-putting. But... It is also a moment that he explains where he doesn't have to try to please everyone around him. He's the one being pleased. He's the one who's satisfying himself. He's the one who's being adulated by the woman in it, which is, I think, really interesting. And you're talking about him being in line and the the school friend that he was trying to emulate and be, you know, keep up with. But even before that guy shows up, he's in line trying to charm the the first woman at the desk. He's chatting with the woman who's behind him in line and he's just like oh yeah i'm a newlywed we got too many chip and dips 
But then the woman he's talking to has a husband who's also in advertising and, oh, my husband would rather be do- eating, you know, his lunch at work. And when she mentions his name at some other firm, he's like, oh, I don't know him. She's like, well, that's because that's because you're here and not at work. Just this like gentle dig that you are still not enough, even though you're doing this thing that you're like weirdly proud of. It's 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 hard to like really put a finger on exactly what he wants and what he's trying to do. But it's because he doesn't really know what he wants or what he's trying to do or how to make it happen. Do you think that he has been reading too much Boys Monthly? <laughs> <laughs> when, when there's that shot of him and he holds up the rifle and he's all like, "It's the same price as a chip and dip." I like oh, that's God. the that magazine is like the first thing I thought. I was like, "Oh, yeah, I you, know, me too." Yeah. me too. <laughs> and when he's he was glorifying it about... to make his thing sound better. Well, when he was talking to uh, Peggy about how you hunt. I just thought, like, I don't think really necessarily that P has ever hunted. He just read these tips and tricks in Boys Monthly. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely got the sense that he's not someone who's ever hunted. By the way, he just points his gun at everyone. Yeah, what did did we think about that? Because the episode definitely, like, plays it for comedy. And I don't... I don't know if that totally holds up through kind of a a 2019 lens. It 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 pinged me a little bit differently that this time watching it than than other times watching it. So I guess Melissa, someone watching it for for the first time in 2019, did kind of the the coding of of it being comedy as kind of this you know him I guess hunting ground, which it sounds more like I'm leading the question than maybe I necessarily should, but like he focuses on when you're looking through his sight on, on Peggy and lingers there and then comes back. And what was your sense of that as watching it for the first time in 2019? Yeah, I felt very uncomfortable. Like I, not only is it's just weird to see. It's weird to see any kind of like guns as jokes at all especially in the hands of someone like pete especially in the workplace and to see like actually like the you know the camera looks through the site at these women and yeah it just made me really uncomfortable i basically thought this is maybe something that is not still great yeah I mean, it's interesting to me, Matt, that you saw it as comedy in the first place, because it is it is extraordinarily com- uncomfortable to watch this go around in 2019. But I, f- in America, school shootings are already kind of a thing, not to the degree and not to the extensive history that we've had in the past 15 years as it is now. But um, but I still but the predatoriness. Mm-hmm. The targeting, especially of the women, but even like his friends, that seemed more that seemed in, intentional to me. That seemed like this is still how he sees the world. These are targets. I have to take them down. I have to go get them. And I mean, now it is a little more relevant because he is that kind of person, this like this entitled white man who thinks he deserves this kind of praise and success and still can't get it and is constantly who feels like the world is constantly putting him down. 
it's 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 such a now such a trope that I feel like I've seen more than once before. Like immediately, the first one coming to mind is Kylo Ren, but hmm. I I don't think just because it is uncomfortable that it's wrong to have in this episode. Right. No, for sure. Um, one more note about Pete. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure we have some more notes, but before we move too far, too much <laughs> further away, um, we're going to talk more about these things when we get to other characters, but his comment to the lady at the counter that, um, you know, his friend Matherson or whatever has the clap. I was like, oh, look, that is a petty jealousy, childish thing. And I think that that's not the only example of that type of thing we're going to get in this episode and I just want to keep clocking those um especially for when we get to discussing Betty and Don so there's a lot about like competition and men's securities in here isn't there yes a lot of quote unquote childish feelings Mm. if you will and then there's the responses to that being kind of a that that pettiness but it's like a misdirection too right like i guess before we move away from from pete we should talk or we kind of have the notes to talk about there's that one shot where where peter's at home and it kind of he's just sitting in the chair and you just hear um trudy and voiceover chiding him for returning the chip and dip for the for the 22 as he as it sits across his lap and how dare he be so selfish and i guess are we are we supposed to feel sorry for pete in that moment or see him for kind of the pathetic person he he kind of is in that situation like what's how are how do you think we're how do you both think we're supposed to to feel about that i don't know i felt scared (laughs) like that the image of someone like pete looking so like angry and unhappy with a gun across his lap like in that lighting I assume it wasn't filmed this way, but how I felt about it was just that, like, it was chilling. Like, I didn't really see Mm. it as, like, oh, sad Pete, oh, pathetic Pete. I saw, like, this is a person who is potentially dangerous now. Like a wild animal trapped in a corner, kind of desperate, pushed to his limits kind of thing. Yeah, and just, like, um, an angry loner with a gun. (laughs) Like... Mm. That's something I think that I, we're all, I think, weary of that. Certainly. now. Even if that's, you know, kind of out of context for this episode, the imagery is still that, at least. It definitely reads differently than it did in the past. It reads differently this week, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Especially with what's raining at the box office currently. <laughs> yes. We will not dive into a discussion about the Joker. Um, personally, I didn't, I don't not feel sympathy for Pete. I could see, especially having not seen, you know, having seen the episode about his parents not long ago and how they treat him. It seemed to me this is probably a position he has taken many a time before, not with a gun in his hand, but someone just scolding him and berating him and telling him how he made the wrong choice. And I can't believe that you could be so stupid. But at the same time, he was an idiot. <laughs> He's in the situation because of himself. He made a poor judgment. He allowed his insecurities to act out. I don't necessarily think these are conflicting ideas, but yeah, the gun, 2019, everything going on right now, everything has a 
much darker read on it. Yeah, and I, and I think part because of that, I'm having a tougher time kind of un, unpacking and kind of... Anytime you watch media, whether it's from 12 years ago or like 60 years ago, like I, I think there's a general like benefit to put it in its 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 context and use that lens, but then also to use kind of, you know, a, a, a modern lens, like looking back at it. And maybe I'm having a tougher time with, with this episode specifically just because of, of, of some of the Im- industry, in imagery and the, the themes it's dealing with and it being so recent. And then also I think... Because I keep going back to that idea of like what I said earlier about like some of the... And again, this is totally a coded phrase, but I'm reusing it in the, the sense that I think the episode kind of uses it a bit too. The idea of like boys being boys and kind of that performative masculinity that happens among... Pete and, and his peers first about the chip and dip and then you know later on when he's like hey ha, I got the rifle like hey ha, I got a toy for me um and then even like the idea of like the rifle being a toy and like and maybe like when I said being played for comedy I didn't I don't what I meant was it had a lighter as portrayed at the time had maybe a bit of a a lighter tone than it does now not that it was supposed to be straight comedy so maybe that was my imprecise word choice of words there um but i do think it is interesting both like trying to again to use my my 2007 lens which is also limited by my own kind of you know how i identify and you know my my perspectives and 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 things like that but that idea of like that, like Pete in the chair, just looked very much like that, that, that hurt little boy. And I, th- I think how I would have read it at the time in 2007 or 2009, probably when I actually watched it is it's like the idea of Peter feeling emasculated, not knowing who he is, and then gets the most masculine toy he can think of. It's like, he's like, and again, just like, I don't know if it's like phallic imagery or like whatever. Right. So it's interesting that I, while still thinking Pete General Humps, excuse me, we'll just call him Humps from now on, um, <laughs> thinking that he sucks and doesn't know who he is, but like my innate biases might be more inclined to seeing the hurt little boy than seeing the the inherent danger within that. Even though like it it did through a more modern lens make me uncomfortable. But I was still able to somewhat, while struggling with it, separate some of that and compartmentalize it. And I don't, I think that that's probably informed by, well, several different things. But what I'm kind of drawing to now is like, I'm probably, I'm limited by, again, my innate biases, which I try to check all the time being like, oh, pizza hurt little boy. I've been a hurt little boy. I get it. Right. But then also I wonder too if the fact that I, and I, yeah, I don't know, just living in a different country, like not that it's not that it's that different, but just like the scaling of it, right? So I don't, interesting. Um, No, I was wondering how it would come across from your perspective, not just because you're like a white man and we're not, but because despite the fact that there's some overlap with the culture and uh, particularly pop culture, you're not an American. You don't have quite the same 
fears as we do or have been inundated quite as constantly for as long with the certain fears that we have with the increasing yeah. number of, of public shootings and everything like that. Not to say you guys don't have your own problems or that it doesn't bleed over, but. Yeah. So anyways, it's interesting. We'll see how much this actually makes the episode, but I did want to kind of come back and I guess walk back my statement about it being comedy, but I definitely think the tone was supposed, how I interpreted the tone was lighter. And I think that might be a callback to kind of my own, you know, experience in my twenties and kind of that various levels of like performative masculinity that like really can end up being petty. Like I remember being in dorms and my friend shot me in the eye with a nerf blow dart. And I like got really upset about it. Cause like it hurt, but again, it was like also like performative, like it wasn't that big of a deal. So it's kind of like that whole insecurity thing. But the whole point was I was being petty as Pete was. And lots of people are through the episode. So, <laughs> so much pettiness. I want to talk about Betty because I think one of, I'm talking again about that like 2017 lens versus versus 2019 lens. I know we we've we've talked about it kind of throughout the season so far, um, but my personal reevaluation of of Betty and 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 looking at things that were always there that I didn't see has been, I think one of the most enjoyable might not be the right word but one of the things i've appreciated the most about kind of working on this this project and starting it through here with you so how did how did we feel about betty this episode a lot yeah a lot like some of it they at times it was hard to really reconcile one feeling about her with another i don't know if you guys had that same experience i thought it was interesting i mean dr dr white her therapist proves to still be the worst is Dr. As, Wayne or Dr. Wayne, sorry, um, calls to get his, his, his report and, and, and whatnot. But I think this was probably one of the first episodes where we really kind of see where Betty's made or started to make progress, um, mm -hmm. from her own kind of like identifying and like kind of unboxing and unpacking what she's feeling and, and how she's feeling. Um, that she doesn't need to necessarily, and maybe I'm jumping ahead, but that maybe some of the advice that her mother gave her isn't isn't something she wants for herself anymore. Um, and I think when you're on any sort of well, mental health kind of journey or, or, or path altogether, it's progress isn't linear, and there's lot. It's it's a scatter plot, right? And I think generally. Not just for Betty, but for for anyone, um, recognizing that it is a scatter plot, and I mean, this hopefully your your kind of your trend line is, you know, in in direction it moves forward. But there are lots of stops and starts and successes and and setbacks and things like that. And I think we really saw this a lot from Betty in this episode, and I think it informed that journey informs, well, respectfully, like all of her actions. Um, for the for the those that are positives and those that are you could probably consider setbacks for sure what about you melissa no i agree with all of that i obviously smacking helen in the grocery store was probably uncalled for but i was it was nice to see betty uh have a big feeling even <laughs> if you shouldn't hit people especially when you're wrong 
<laughs> and then again, I was happy to see her kind of come back against Dawn after the whole Roger thing happened and then open up to Francine. I think, yeah, we do see forward motion for Betty, even when, like you said, it's not linear. Some of these things aren't necessarily great. Like, you can't hit people. (laughs) So, like, that's not great. But, like, having a feeling and doing something about that feeling, that is good. So we'll just need to tweak that a little bit. Yeah, and I think that that specific, her hitting um, Helen in in the the grocery store, um, I think it's partially about that specific situation and, and... the lock of hair and, and Betty knowing deep down that she shouldn't have given it to Glenn, but then acquiescing for, you know, whatever reason. So she knows she's been caught. So she's going to, often your defense mechanism when you know you've done something wrong, but do it anyways, and then get caught is you're going to lash out. But I also think too, that in that moment, that, that very um, emotional reaction or that, you know, reaction in, in itself is also, probably a response to some of the other stuff that's happened in the episode that she is suppressed down right and spent so much energy like trying to like paint that masterpiece for for dawn and everyone else that it kind of once you know what i mean it's like you can only put so many sticks of gum in the dam before one of them's going to pop out and the water's going to come through right so that that was definitely my my reading on that Annie, what about you? What did you think about Betty this episode? I See, I actually found the slap to be kind of a weak moment for her because it is her being defensive, mm-hmm. even though she knows mm-hmm. she's wrong. And it's someone actually calling her out for something that she shouldn't be doing just because her friends think that she's sweet and perfect. Helen is like, I see what you're doing and actually called him out on it. And I think, I don't know, I think it was actually really both an awful thing for her to discuss it in public mm-hmm. and admit ahead of time that she was just going to avoid Betty altogether. But I mean, it, it's one of those things where I see people, you know, like especially women when they do have conflicts with each other, a lot of it is just, you can't punch up. So you kind of like attack laterally and it's, it's a moment that Francine and Betty are able to use later on uh, to justify being awful to Helen in the future. And Helen's like the only actual adult here, it turns out. Um, but mostly I did feel sorry for her because you see how Don and Roger treat her. You know, when Roger's like, oh, you're flirting with me. And she's like, no, I was just being nice to my husband's boss. And Don's like, you were flirting with him. It was really accusatory and awful to her. And she even like suggests, oh, are you, you, you going to push me around now? Because you're a big man who does that kind of thing. Betty literally cannot win with Dawn. She can't. And it was just so heartbreaking because she was just trying to do something for her husband. She was just trying to be nice. And it's certainly not the first time I've ever seen a woman be nice to a man and him taking it as the wrong way. And you just know that if she would have acted more reserved or more closed off and not facilitated conversations at that dinner, Don would have accused her of, you know, probably being a bitch. Yeah. Yeah. Why couldn't you have helped me out here? This is my boss. And then when she tries to make it up to him by making pot roast and he throws it back at her and her poor little face. I remember reading reviews and stuff and, and, uh, 
Oh, that's the word. Um, like not episode guys, like episode summaries and reviews and everything of of the episodes as they were coming out, and people talking about, oh, this is, you know, January Jones hasn't really gotten to show in her acting before this role, and but she's found this perfect like ice queen kind of character that plays to her strong suits more. But now I'm like. It's not so much that she's like this frigid ice queen type person and not the most emotive actress. I mean, I still don't haven't seen much to prove otherwise, but we're seeing what happens when she does try to reveal a warmer side, a more open side. It gets used against her, whether it's how she talks to Roger and Don, um, you know, holding it against her, what she tells Dr. Wayne and how, again, plays into Dr. into Don's insecurities and he holds that against her and in the end she has to protect herself when she makes a comment about him the Dr. Wayne looking down her neckline you're like did he really or are you just saying that and it's your way to to keep your distance from him too she's not a woman with a lot of agency but you just see the world kind of pushing her around and not really allowing her to have any to begin with yeah and it's just Don is so unfair to her. And I was still mad at Don about the last episode. (laughs) (laughs) And so this is not helping. Mm -mm. Um, But I... Like, Don... It wouldn't be... Like, if you think that your wife having fun and having conversations at the dinner table is making a fool out of herself, for one, unpack that a little bit, sir. But also, it's not that hard to get Betty giggling and chatting. Nobody talks to her. You don't talk to her. You don't sit down at dinner and tell her stories. Like, when Mm -hmm. Roger makes, like, just the slightest comment about Don's like, where he grew up, you just see Betty's full attention on Don, like, what is your face going to say in, re- in like, response to this? What, how mm-hmm. am I going to learn something new about you accidentally here? Like, and the immediate left turn that Don makes when he realizes someone has, like, paid attention. Yeah, you're not allowed to pay attention to Don, and you're not allowed to t- pay attention to Betty either, even though... That's what Betty wants. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we see Betty, um, you know, reaching out for male attention from anywhere because she's clearly not getting it, getting what she needs, you know, at home. And that's what happens with Roger. That's what happens with Glenn, who's nine. It's, it's, you don't not want to excuse her. But it's also hard not to see how everyone around her has put her into this position. Because, like, needy people aren't needy if they get what they need. No, and needing things isn't bad. Like, being a needy person has, like, a a negative connotation, but it's really not. Like, if you're being starved for social attention, then you do need that. And that's a healthy thing to need. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't think anyone's really shown her properly what exactly these things are she needs or how to get it either nor is she really allowed to so she's just going to get it in any form yeah and like no no one no one's taught her or had that kind of 
more healthy role modeling because the most important kind of her, I guess, tabula rasa, like it, it, it advice, like what is, is like, you're painting a masterpiece, hide the brush strokes, like, or br- brush strokes, excuse me. Like, like don't, don't show the seams, just, mm-hmm. just craft your image and be perfect and be who, who other people want you to be, be admired. Um, Mary well that's why they named you Lady Goodman like that I mean but like yeah it's just like hide hide your brokenness and just be art just be pretty just be admired and that that's the only validation you need don't be a person mm-hmm. we don't see ha- so much of like people acting out and against each other because these insecurities get twigged in this episode it's really heartbreaking it is an interesting quote that she gives of her mom though because we see don doing the exact same thing from the very first episode where they're like oh you coming up with some genius thing and he likes to act like he's like it just comes to him he just saves everything at the last moment like he hadn't been going through the research hadn't been sitting and talking to people that he comes across in the streets or you know waiters at the restaurants for their ideas that kind of thing and on something i guess before i did want to to flag as well was when when Don's talking to to Dr. Wayne and Dr. Wayne's diagnosing um Betty and, and sharing what they've been talking about the idea that you know she's an anxious person well yes um but that she's full of, of petty jealousies and is completely overwhelmed by like simple tasks and we're dealing with she's like the little girl um which then Don then weaponizes to, to throw at her later um being overwhelmed by simple tasks is like totally normal when you have anxiety and like because you, you magnify the things and like you stress about them and whatever and that doesn't that doesn't make you infantile or or childlike it just means you're a person that's like living with anxiety and has to really not to be needy but just your brain works differently and need you know, support from your, your friends and partners when, when you kind of don't have enough spoons like that. And I just, to hear that use against her and use a way to kind of, you know, infant, infantil, infantilize her, I was also quite frustrated by in this episode. So. I was just going to say, I don't think Don's much better better either because Dr. Wayne actually says the things that she has talked about are these infantile, petty things but he, you know, he mentions like, oh, we're just getting started. This is something we're working through. It'll, you know, I think she'll do better once you get to the deeper issues. And Don's like, there are deeper issues. He's like, yeah, usually. But Don just uses the surface stuff and weaponizes that. Yeah, I have this in the notes later, but we can just touch on it now. Um, when Don uses, because Dr. Wayne said, you know, we're dealing with someone with the emotions of a child. And then he says to her, oh, sometimes I feel like I'm living with a little girl. Like, well, for one, you don't feel that way. Someone told you that about her. So, like, how dare you use her therapy secrets against her, you shitty-ass person. But also, like, that you're just reaching for the cruelest thing. Which is, like, sad for Don. Because I'm like... I'm kind of convinced he doesn't even really feel that way. He just knows that that's a thing, and it was the easiest, cruelest thing, so he wanted to hurt her and didn't even want to do any work to do it. Do we think that what he heard from Dr. Wayne just brought more to the surface 
that Don isn't providing for Betty in the way that he thinks he should be as a husband and he's taking it out on her? I think there's a lot of people taking out other things and, and being petty with other people in this episode that aren't the source of their insecurities or aren't the, the, the triggers in this episode, right? Like, I, I think, and maybe we can use this as a pivot to talk about, about Roger and Don, but I think Roger latching on to Don and then maybe inviting himself over to dinner or maybe Don feeling like he had to invite him over for dinner was a result of... Roger's insecurity when when Joan says you need to give me more time if you want to have a weekend away with me, mm-hmm. right? I think we talked about earlier. Um, Betty lashing out at Helen is as much about I think their situation with Don and Roger as it is about you know her her mistake in giving Glenn her lock of hair, um, and you have again we talked about before Pete being petty because he doesn't get. He, he's socialized to not feel like he needs to, to get his way and, and all that stuff with the, the chip and dip and then his his prep school friend and, and all of that situation, right? So I definitely think it's it's textual to the episode that the, the titular, well, there's a couple different red faces, but like the petty anger and jealousy and, and the lashing out by various people in this episode is because of something else or someone else that's in the episode, not necessarily what they're they're lashing out at, right? Yeah, right. I was carting through the examples to see if there was <laughs> if there was something else. Um, one more before we move on from Betty. Dr. Wayne says that this is this type of anxiety and petty insecurity is which I bristle at because if someone's insecure, that's not petty. We're not choosing to feel this way. Like, something is making me feel bad. <laughs> Don't call that petty. But, not that. Um, saying that this type of anxiety and insecurity is not uncommon in housewives, I'm just thinking, yeah, because all of these husbands are out doing God knows what. We don't know what time they're coming home from work, who girls they're seeing on their lunch breaks. Like, of course these housewives have anxiety. They don't have any attention paid to them, and their husbands are all shitbags, so... (laughs) Yeah. Yep. They're all allowed to have a life outside of the house. They're all allowed to have an internal life. But if you dare suggest that these women have other desires or other social lives other than getting the groceries, taking care of the kids, taking care of the house... Oh, Lord, everything's going to come crashing down. You can't have it both ways. Like, you can't ignore your wife and run around all of Manhattan doing whatever and then not deal with the consequences of emotionally neglecting a person you live with. That was a way of thinking for a long time, wasn't it? That women just aren't able to handle anything, but that's because so much is put on their plates without any means to really, uh, what's the word, to, to process it and deal with it and have all the resources to, to get by. Yeah. And we get another petty insecurity, um, from Francine, which (laughs) a good supportive friend, but like not a forward momentum conversation here (laughs) being like, Oh good. Now we can just all hate Helen. You were the last. (laughs) Um, I like to see like solidarity and friendships, but it is hard to be like, yeah, 
you go. But when she was talking about how her husband bought her a gift from Benson's jewelry, she was like, oh, I wanted to crumple the paper and throw it in his face. Like, petty. Like, Helen is out here with a job. Just enjoy your necklace or whatever you got. <laughs> Calling it a pathetic job when that's the job feeding her children. No. I mean, yeah, good for Francie for being a good friend, but you also have to kind of wonder, oh, are you just trying to, like, Get are you gas? just looking for a reason to justify your your terrible feelings and to feel self-righteous? Because some people get off on that, too. I don't yeah. like Francine. Francine sucks. <laughs> she really does. <laughs> like, drinking wine while pregnant is the least terrible thing she does in that scene. I mean, at least she didn't accept her own glass. She just, like... Took a big old gulp out of <laughs> Betty. Also, can we point out? Can I point out how impeccably dressed and accessorized that Betty is, just to drink wine by herself in the middle of the afternoon? Oh, I know. She looked great in this whole episode. She did pearls and the jewels and She's the got her like, beautifully pleated dress. One ear with her earrings. <laughs> She's an image, but also you're like, no one's gonna see you for like four hours if unless something happens. Right. Paint your masterpiece. Hide the brush strokes. Mm -hmm. So, moving on, we've got the Tweedledee and Tweedledum over here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we've got Roger and Don, like, doing a lot in this episode. Um, Let's focus on Roger first. Um, We see... Sterling tell him basically you need to not smoke so much because Oh Cooper you mean? Sorry? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we see Cooper telling him you need to not smoke so much. Um for one because you never know when you're going to have to walk up six flights of stairs. <laughs> and for two, Although Don had no problem. Yeah, he was killing it. But Don doesn't have an ulcer yet. Um But he was telling this story about how Hitler got someone to uh, Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain. Neville Chamberlain to not to be confused with Neville Longbottom. (laughs) (laughs) Very different people. Um, But basically, Neville Chamberlain's smoking vice is what caused his downfall. Um, And saying that, you know having a vice like that is a sign of weakness and then I just felt that that was just showing what happens to Roger when Joan basically rejects him and I feel like his relationship with Joan is kind of a vice for him because he says like you're the reason I didn't leave my wife you know um But I just think that that is a direct connection to, like, what happens with Roger and Betty. Like, he can no longer make good choices because he can't have this thing that he, quote, unquote, needs. So I'm like, good story. Thematically connected. I like it, Mad Men. (laughs) Yeah, and and then the Chamberlain-Hitler story is is interesting, right? Because that's... Because Bert's referring to... um, basically appeasement right so it's to try and summarize this a lot it was i think 1938 basically there's there's a conference and hitler was given part of 
I think it was Czechoslovakia at the time, was Sudetenland. And the idea was Chamberlain came back triumphant, saying that, and what was the quote, he'd achieved peace in our time because they had appeased Hitler's ambitions, which, I mean, spoiler alert for history, um, it didn't, and it didn't work. But then thinking back to kind of the episode and, and the petty jealousies and, and the vices and how vice is a weakness and how, like, Roger's vices, he Roger wasn't appeased, so he behaves badly and acts out. And I think that ties in with what we're talking about kind of with all these kind of pettiness throughout the episode. There was a lot of like World War One, World War Two talk with like Roger like throughout the episode. Like more more so than I think we've really seen so far to date. Like I know Dawn's service has been recognized and we knew that Roger was a, a veteran previously, but you kind I kinda got the sense this episode that it very much still reigns heavy over over roger's identity um than maybe we even thought before with how carefree he seems to to necessarily want us to be and also i think bert calling roger peanut when he says like have a good night peanut and like leaves i thought that was kind of charming in in, in its own way um as much as bert's kind of a weirdo and i think a republican well i think they're all republicans let's face it but though weirdly bert is also like the most evolved evolved of all the men at the same time uh but it is telling like when they're talking about the war at the dinner table and roger's like oh right the one that don was in not the one i was talking about and then he had his father who was in world war one uh it is sort of interesting this idea i mean they weren't really in peacetime but they technically were i think uh during this time period and how it has like shaped these, these men's uh, idea of masculinity and, and power. Well, yeah. Cause what, what does, what does Don say to Roger? You, you boys used up all the glory. Like there, there's not yeah. all the glory, something like that. Yeah. And, and I don't even think it was just Joan's rejection of, of Roger where she clearly had the upper hand on that when she says, you know, I I don't care if we're going to Cuba. I would like a little notice. And he makes a comment about her, how she has all these rules. Because, you know, Cooper has this sort of like almost fatherly um, or at least wise older man relationship with Roger. So when he talks about Roger's uh, weaknesses and calls him out on his own behavior and stuff, I think that was the start of it and him like suddenly needing Joan, but then Joan wasn't available. So he's like, Hey Don, you want to hang out? Uh, yeah. And then we lead to um, the Roger and Don at the bar and Roger's like eyeing these two beautiful young women who probably don't, whose ages don't add up to 30 between them, according to Don. And when Don leaves after rejecting the idea of, of, you know, an encounter, they, they're both watching him walk away and Roger is the one who's just looking at the back of their heads, looking dejected, just kind of one piling on top of the other and him very much feeling unattractive and feeling his age and not wanted. So I had a, I had a question about that, the exchange just before that, where Roger is, oh, I'm, Mona and, and Margaret are fighting and Mona's not cooking and I, I'm the victim of this, this squabble between his, his wife and his, his child and he hasn't had a home-cooked meal in a while. Do you think 
was Roger actively looking for an invitation? Did he actually invite himself or did Don invite him and then say Roger invited himself to kind of try and like throw his hands up when he, when he called Betty to say that Roger was coming with him? Cause when I, well, the first time I watched the episode yesterday, I definitely thought Roger invited himself, but when I rewatched it this morning, I was a little less convinced that that's what Roger was doing. So I'm I'm curious what you both thought of that exchange. I could really see it going either way. Um, I definitely, this doesn't answer your question, but I definitely think that Don knew that he was going to have to say Roger invited himself, even though he was like, oh, Betty will be thrilled. Like, sir, your wife is an anxious little soul. You know she does not want surprise guests at her dinner table. Yeah. Like, is Don offering it because he feels like he should be there for his boss um, for his own sake? Or is he just picking up on the fact that this is a person who needs something and I am able to offer it, even at the expense of my my wife, who gets to miss out on that fabulous looking steak and then act like she's okay with it? The whole thing is just frustrating because I just thought about the pot roast again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Betty. It does feel like Roger was fishing for an invite. Fishing is the perfect word. Although, I'm unconvinced that Roger has never cooked himself a meal. So, like, if your wife doesn't cook, there are several implements in your kitchen that can help you create an edible meal. He's in New York. You can just get takeout. (laughs) Yeah, Brad, bring home a pizza. What's wrong with you? Well, at some point, he tells Don during his, like, half-assed apology to Don and not to Betty for hitting on her while horribly drunk and he says something like, you know, when you get your name on a building, you get like an unnatural sense of entitlement. He's like, yeah, no shit, dude. We noticed. Everybody parks in the wrong garage sometimes. That, uh, that, that Ugh. pissed me off so much. Get the fuck out of here with that. It's like, like, what was, yes, exactly. Retweet, like, um, get the fuck out of here. Um, and but then he's, Don still holds it against Betty, even though that Roger's the one apologizing. I, yes, even though he apologized to yes, yes. <laughs> And, like, Roger's whole, like, Roger realizes somehow, magically, that, like, he acted poorly. That he misbehaved. Because the minute, like, the minute after he takes, like, he harasses Betty and Don comes in it's like that scene is so awkward but like he he lets go right away and then he he leaves and then he brings a a peace offering to Don and gives that stupid story about parking in the wrong garage spot and whatever and it's like you know who's not involved in this apology at all fucking Betty like it's not Betty that he did a bad thing to I know and it's but he did and it's just like I know he did (laughs) It's so frustrating because then Don's pettiness and his revenge, it's not about Betty. He's still pissed off at Betty for just being a person that exists that's like trying to entertain last minute in her house. It's like this stupid, like, nanometh performative, like, this. it's the same toxic things that, like, 
at one point it's like when it's just boys being boys and like fraternalizing and frat packets like it's coded one way and like my bias is like innately that i've been working on is is one way like this is like light and then it's so like but the downstream impacts of this the logical result is this sort of like competitive pettiness and rules of behavior as it relates to someone else's partner someone else's like spouse but like the spouse is totally removed and her agency is removed and it's like i'm gonna get back at you because you parked in my garage and that's a euphemism for taking a pass at my partner fuck that okay i'm sorry i'm gonna try and calm down now someone else please talk (laughs) do would we feel better about don if he would have not only forgiven, not that Betty even needed to be forgiven. Okay, would we feel better about Don's like revenge if he would have treated Betty better, and if they would have had like a conversation about like, I'm sorry, my boss did that to you. I'm gonna make him vomit in front of the GOP. Like, would oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, part of it is the fact that he's I don't know if he thinks he has to like maintain this like bro code where he ex- accepts the apology and we're totally cool and then he takes it out on Betty instead because he can't take it out on Roger probably would have been nice if he was all like yeah no dude this is what happened and it wasn't cool you should apologize to Betty or at least just be like all right I'm upset but someone apologize to Betty everyone apologize to Betty right now but at some point, even he doesn't even it's just annoying that they don't even put it into words. And Don has to or for whatever reason, it's just like, yeah, we're cool. You know, I mean, it's his boss. There's certain dynamics at play. But he has all this repressed anger, too, probably, and just takes it out on his wife, the most innocent person in this situation. So, yeah, pretty much. Yes. If you were nicer to Betty it would have been a lot better. Do we think that the lack of Betty in this, like, um, weird garage apology and subsequent revenge scheme is just because of the 60s time period or just because of Don and Roger being Don and Roger? Or is it a little bit about 2007 as well? Do we think? I don't know the answer. I was just curious. That one's going to take some time. I need to sit with. Like, I wonder if anyone in 2007 had this same complaint. I guess. Listeners, tell me. I mean, I assume people were still petty back then, and there was a lot more passive aggressiveness, or at least as much as there is nowadays. Mm -hmm. But, like, specifically, Hmm. like, the wrong you did was against Betty, and she should be the one receiving an apology. I just... I'm curious. Because I don't know when I started seeing scenarios in that way. Because, I mean, Betty might not even assume that she, like, deserves an apology from Roger either just for, like, internalized misogyny reasons. Mm Mm-hmm. I may do a little deep dive in some old write-ups later on. Fun. Okay. So we can come back to that. (laughs) I do... Agree, I need to sit with that very good question some more. Mm-hmm. That being said, my initial response would be it's 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 kind of all of the above. Mm-hmm. Because even though, as I just ranted not that long ago, about like 
Roger apologizing for the wrong thing and to the wrong wrong person he has that when Don's like oh, I don't know what you're talking about and then Roger has this line where he goes you're not gonna make this easy are you or, or something like that like like Roger feels like he's being the bigger person and and and, and trying and it Don's not making it easy for him and I think where I can see the more kind of downstream like kind of modern effects of that is is kind of that that inability that still exists with both in I think 2007 and 2019 for men to be vulnerable like that in front of each other and like it's like hey I'm gonna like the kind of unspoken vulnerability and things like that so I think that's where kind of it's not just 1960 but I don't know to like the response to that in the place of Betty and that I need to to do some reflect more more reflecting and reading on that Mm-hmm. Agreed. So now that we're mad at everyone. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you guys a funny little story about how when I watched this episode the first time, I guess I wasn't paying good enough attention because I missed the Roger vomit. <laughs> and so when I was watching it again today before we recorded, I literally was like, oh my God. It's so aggressive. <laughs> and like, it's a, look, it's really good, vo- really good projectile vomit. It was very horrifying. seamlessly done. It's clearly not just um, what's his face, uh, the actor whose name I totally forgot now. Uh, John Slattery. John Slattery just holding a bunch of crap in his mouth and spitting it out. They had like they had to have like hidden a hose somewhere. Maybe CGI some stuff out. It was very well done. That with the giant sweat stain on his jacket is like, Oof. no. Chef kiss emoji. And then Roger's like, oh, oysters. And then Bert looks <laughs> down and goes, I can see that. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, I really mean, but like the weird bro code where the guys are like, oh man, that sucks. Wish I was at your dinner or lunch or having lunch yeah. with you guys instead of the Quakers. <laughs> Seems like a very Nixon thing, personally, where they're like, no, oh, that would have been nice. I missed that this was like a Don scheme the entire <laughs> first time. Like, yeah. I didn't really clock that he paid off the elevator worker the first time. And so when he did that in the second time I watched it, I was like, hmm, where is this going? And then I realized, I realized it whenever the elevator was closed, I'm like, oh, this was a scheme, and then that clicked the line into place whenever he was at lunch saying, like, oh, I'm on the Roger Sterling diet to just, like, Mm -hmm. keep pumping him full of oysters and martinis. And every subtle line of, do you want me to run ahead? Yeah. No, I was definitely watching the elevator um, operator because... I could see his face when the elevator's open and he's standing there, just him and like Pete looking troubled with a gun. I was like, oh, buddy, I am so sorry for you right now. Yeah. Ugh, Pete. Pete. Although, I do think Roger is more the worst than Pete is in this episode, so at least Pete has that going for him. For sure. True. I may also just be projecting onto that black man my 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 nervousness about an anguished white dude with a gun or maybe not yeah i feel we all feel that i think we all do or at least me and you and hollis yes things are much quieter up north 
I mean, yes, yes and no. It just it's like a scaling issue. I just anyways, <laughs> yeah. Um, but that is the last like severely petty thing I want to call out in this episode is Don going through this whole entire scheme just to. When I was taking my notes, I'm like, did he get the elevator shut down so they'd have to take the stairs just to, like, did he want to miss the GOP meeting, uh, try to kill Roger? Like, what is the goal? And when the end result was a real struggle and some very inappropriate workplace vomit, Don is like, little smile, I'm like, you petty. Petty insecurities, motherfucker. He is a little bitch. <laughs> it's funny how like Roger's weaknesses also still somehow became about Don by the, in the end because like are we gonna see Roger retaliate or anything does this show turn into just a prank war is that the madman <laughs> <laughs> the water balloons will commence next week spoiler alert <laughs> before we wrap things up how do we feel about Peggy and how she reacted to Pete's cabin fantasy. My new favorite thing in the show is like Peggy being flustered and not knowing where to go in the office. <laughs> and then her answer to like being flustered and like a little bit like out of sorts is to consume food, which I, it, that's very relatable to me. <laughs> very relatable. I need to eat. Also, carbs. Mostly carbs. Just carbs. Yeah. Just give, give me, me carbs. Big-ass cherry one. <laughs> Not that one. The big one. I, I also... Like... Oh, sorry, Matt. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, I, I also liked when, when Don comes over to ask um, Don what, what he's doing that, that evening after work, and Peggy just answers what it was. Oh, I'm, I'm working late, you know. Well, I, I'm doing copy with, with Freddie Rumson now, and blah, 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 blah. And he's like... He's like, actually, I was talking to Don, but Peggy's like, no, you're here and I'm going to answer. And I think that that, to track back to, we're talking about kind of a couple episodes where Trudy first comes to the office and Peggy's very silent and not seen and kind of just ignored. And then she walks away and then Trudy kind of sees her and just does that very polite wave. But Peggy probably knew Roger was talking to Don. Actually, I think she did. And then she answered anyways. And I think that is talking about progress and things like that, I think that's probably her her confidence in now writing cop, copy and being more comfortable in that, that office, which I think was is worth mentioning as well. So Now it's like she's one of the boys. Although part of me was also, um, I mean, I imagine it's a mix of that and her previous relationship with Pete. And she's like, oh, I'm not just a secretary you slept with. Now we're official colleagues. But also, if you come up to Peggy's desk and talk, she's going to answer. Yeah. <laughs> like, you came yeah. over to me. Yeah. And you know Pete probably looked at her, too. Yeah. Totally. For sure. How much would I not trust Pete, though, if he's like, hey, you have some ideas? I'll take a look at them for you. None of your little dumbass friends want your help. <laughs> <laughs> you. <laughs> you got published in Boys Monthly. <laughs> Oh, I just see him stealing ideas. He's not one of our creatives. A hundred percent. Roger's still currently the worst. Pete, still close. Roger has that look when Don walks away and has that smirk. Do you think that, that Roger's look is just about the situation? Or do you think he realizes what Don did? 
I don't know. There's, I, there is enough plausible deniability that even if he thinks he knows Don did it, what's he gonna say? Yeah. You yeah, made I me think puke. He just feels bested. I'm yeah. sorry. Can you sit down and eat 24 oysters? Because I like oysters, and that's a lot. It's a lot of oysters, and then and climb cheesecake. up 26. Was it 23 flights of stairs? Oh yeah. yes, cheesecake. I can barely go up like two stories and want to take a break. Yeah, no kidding. And Don is just showing off lighting cigarettes while they climb the stairs. <laughs> Do you want me to run ahead? It's okay. Do you want to take a break? Do you want to see if the elevators are still working? It's like, no, we probably would have heard them here in the stairwell if they were. Which is probably a lie. Any in the notes you have that one quote that that um, Roger says to, to Don talking about the two young women at, at the bar about at a certain age they they lose it that glow of pure pure youth excuse me and like just tying it back to that that look that that Roger gives Don as he walks away as as he's been bested um, Don's obviously over thirty but I can't help but wonder if if that's how Roger's feeling but even if he isn't aware of all of Don's petty machinations to to lead to the, to the the projectile vomit, but he just feels old and and tired and and weak for the first time because he's definitely used to that entitlement and that that power over kind of everyone else in the office. And vom- when when you vomit, no matter you know whether it's in in that kind of setting or even just when you're home alone, it's 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 really like weakening, and you don't like to be seen that way no one likes to do it and that's pretty uh pretty vulnerable position for him to be in front of the entire in the entire office so bested i think is a a good word melissa it's roger like the dad and in, in like oedipus rex like don is the one whom he loves and is affectionate for but also he knows that don's gonna kill him one day <laughs> i like that yeah. so matt what is this here you have about the pink lady who ran against nixon well, so when they're having the the pre meeting, they're talking about why Nixon is a is a better candidate than 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 Kennedy would be, and and how he'd he'd go for the the jugular later. So the the pink lady they're referring to was Nixon's Senate campaign, and it was former actor and politician Helen Gagan Gagan Douglas, excuse me. And Nixon said she was pink down to her underwear as a reference to what he perceived as her her communist sympathies at the time. Um, she starred in the 1935 film, among other things, titled She, which also was used as the template for the evil witch in Snow White. Um, there is a great episode, if anyone wants to learn more about ha- Helen Douglas, of the podcast You Must Remember This. It's episode 79. It's part of the Blacklist series. It's it's really interesting and worth a listen. Part of why they consider that she had communist sympathies was because she was part of the Anti-Nazi League but it was too early. So just, I guess in Cole's notes in, in Hollywood, there was the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League. And if you joined it too early, it was, pro- it was considered because you were a communist because the U.S. wasn't yet in the war. So if you opposed the Nazis, you were probably a pinko. So yeah, no, check out You Must Remember This to learn more about Helen Gehagen Douglas. Cool. I will do that. I, my little tidbit is um, just a funny joke because I just reread Looking for Alaska 
And in that book, the main character's roommate drinks vodka in milk because you can't smell the vodka over the milk unless the, like, teacher tastes it to actually catch him drinking. And they call it ambrosia, and that is what Roger's drinking at the beginning of this episode. Adding vodka to your milk as your, like, ulcer treatment probably totally negates any positive effects of the milk, though, hey? Plus, that's disgusting. I mean, not if you add Kahlua to it. I mean, I you know. yeah, I was going to say, it's, I, I have assume a nice it's kind of white Russian-y, but... Yeah, sans, sans Kahlua. Um, but Roger usually also prefers a drop of strawberry jam in his glass of milk. Jesus Christ. Uh, <laughs> Anyone else feel like vomiting then, even more than the vodka? Yeah, it's terrible. So, Annie, where can people find more of your work on the internet? Well, if you would like... We're having some real literary thoughts over at the Daily Nightly, a Jane Austen podcast that I run with our lovely friend Jesse. You can find us at the Daily Nightly on Twitter or at thedailynightly.com. I am also on the Twitters uh, as myself at Pop Artery, P-O-P-A-R-T-E-R-Y. How about you guys? You can find me on Twitter at Mellow Yellow, which is M-E-L-L-O-O Yellow. And as the co-host of the Wild Pretty Things podcast, where we go over various movies and TV shows, kind of just as a, as the fancy strikes, I can't uh, can't commit to a topic for you because we pick them at random. <laughs> <laughs> and where are you at, Mike? And you can find me on Twitter at, at MaddieHugh. Um, you can also find the show at, at StillGreatPod on Twitter. As of this recording, because we recorded a couple episodes ahead, um, we are now in Apple Podcasts, so please find us there and rate and review us and subscribe if you haven't. Hopefully you already have. If this is your first episode, please subscribe. Um, And tune in next week when we discuss Episode 8, The Hobo Code. Later days. Everyone just act cool, right?